It's been eight years since what was called, with more hope than accuracy, the Arab Spring. And last month, Egypt's president, Abdel Fattah al-Sisi, won re-election, surprising no one since he had no serious competitors. President Sisi is not a Democrat, small d, but he does appear to be a serious reformer, and he is fighting jihadis on the ground in Egypt every day. Does he deserve America's support? Today I am joined by the Hudson Institute senior fellow Samuel Tadras, who knows Egypt well, its history, its politics, its religions. Its future is more difficult to see. This is Foreign Policy. Either the U.S. enforces some rules in the world, or there are no Every U.S. president has tried to diminish tension with Russia, has reached out to the Russians. Most of those have failed, especially when Vladimir Putin became the leader. They're still killing guys who joined the jihad in 1979 or 1980 or 1981 who are still in the we game. We are seeing a ramp up in North Korean cyber capabilities over the last decade. Iran is basically putting forth these claims of nuclear innocence that they are doing nothing wrong, that there are no violations, and that's just factually not correct. I am fearful for what happens to Turkey now. If you thought that it was dangerous that a coup might have toppled this democracy, think about what this very autocratic man might do. Sam Tadros, there's recently been an election in Egypt. It wasn't expected to change much. I think it didn't change much. Would would you agree with that? Definitely. (laughs) What happened there? Why have an election at all if it's not going to be a real election? Why Why would General and President Sisi decide, yes, let's have an election. I want to have international observers, but I'm not going to have any serious opponents. And that's what happened. Those yeah. who might have been serious opponents were pushed out one way or another. His one opponent was somebody who in the past has supported him, probably supports him now, and probably supported him more or less during the election as well. Well, I think there are two contradictory sentiments that Sisi has. On the one hand, he's the most um, military guy that has ever ruled Egypt. Every other president in Egypt's history had a political education before coming to power. Nasser had been involved in various conspiracies with the Brotherhood, with fascist young Egypt. Sadat was a spy for the Nazis. Even the most apolitical (laughs) officer, uh, Hosni Mubarak, had been vice president for six years, having getting an on-the-job training for that. This guy comes directly from the barracks. He's had no experience with politics, and he has a deep disdain for the idea of politics. I think many in Washington mistake it for a disdain for democracy. It's not really democracy that he doesn't like. It's the very notion of politics, of compromise, of negotiations, of all that games that are played to maintain a coalition or or maintain a, a government or any of that. Um, And everything that has happened in Egypt since has reinforced that uh, sentiment that he has. The politicians fighting with each other after the 2011 revolution, all of them acting for their own interests, none of them caring for Egypt. From his worldview, only he and the institution he comes from really have the best interests of Egypt at heart. On the other hand, this is also a very insecure man. Somehow deep there inside of him, he feels illegitimate. He's talked often, stressed, I never did a coup against Morsi. I never betrayed him. I don't know if he personally feels some form of guilt of having imprisoned the man that actually appointed him as Minister of Defense in the first place. But there's also this 
constant fear that the world doesn't see him as legitimate. Obama had refused to meet him, invite him to the United States, had met him on the sidelines of the United Nations before that, but never gave him the state visit that he always wanted. So in a sense, the elections, the 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 disdain for politics, the, the lack of interest in it has meant this attitude of not allowing any real elections to take place, while this need for international recognition has meant holding an election and trying to prove, encouraging Egyptians to vote, to prove to the world, look, my people love me. I'm, I'm their legitimate leader. So does he think do, 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 that, that this election was a failure because it didn't provide the legitimacy he thought it should? No, I think the numbers that came out, and we need to treat them, of course, with a lot of uh, lack of acceptance or whatever it is. A great the, result. <laughs> I mean, it's, there's no doubt that he has support. Mm -hmm. um, he is a popular leader. He has a genuine base of support. But there's no way that we can take the numbers as serious as we took previous election numbers. One thing I heard when I was, when I was in Egypt recently, as you know, was that he was looking for turnout. In particular, yes, that the exactly. first time he ran, I think it was like forty seven percent. He hoped that he'd get fifty one percent who would show a certain enthusiasm for him. But he didn't quite achieve that, even uh, with the numbers being. I mean, there were twenty five million. Yeah. I think the number in the first election, twenty four in the second. So from his point of view, he's so showing that he still has this base of support. Um, again, I mean, the largest turnout in Egypt's history, Egypt's parliamentary elections of 2011-12 was 60%. So it's not as if mm. we're talking that 47 or 40% is a small number. It's, right. it's huge in terms of the level of participation by this particular population. So from his perspective, he got a huge turnout. It's definitely more than what voted for Morsi in his election. It shows that the regime still maintains popular support. And we can move back to no politics in the country, basically. When you look at the small constellation of people who could have run against him, is there anyone you see there who you say, if that person, if that individual had run, and if he had won, Egypt would be a better country today? Uh, it's a tough question yeah. because there aren't that many alternatives in Egyptian politics. This, in a sense, has always been the curse of the politics, the emptiness of the political space, the available candidates holding uh, views that are worse than the current occupant, whether they're communists, whether they're Islamists, whatever their ideology was. In this case, I think um, the candidacy of Ahmad Shafiq, the previous prime minister, the then presidential candidate, he was appointed prime minister in Mubarak's last days, presidential candidate against Morsi, came out in the second round with 49% or 48.7%. He probably has a better sense of the need for compromise. I don't mean compromise with the brotherhood. I mean a, um, a live and let live policy allowing local interests to maintain themselves. Um, to deal with the local politicians, a return, in a sense, to Mubarak-style politics, which were never free, but they were half-open politics. They weren't entirely democratic, but they maintained uh, room for maneuver for the opposition, for everyone, to let this team come out and hence um, uh, the system continuing. I came away with an impression, and maybe my impressions may be wrong, but on the one hand, it's very, the Egypt is quite un, unfree under 
uh, under President Sisi. Uh, human rights are not particularly recognized. There's very little in the way of a public square. He has very little interest in that at the moment. But on the other hand, and I heard this from defenders, who many of whom I thought were pretty articulate, he is dealing with some of the most serious problems that Egypt has, such as an economy that could be failing and imploding, in fact, was under the Muslim Brotherhood, was under Mubarak, 95 million people. They need to work. They need to be able to earn a living. He's doing things like reducing subsidies, not a popular thing to do. People wouldn't vote for it. Subsidies for gas, subsidies for food, and encouraging security that is necessary if businesses are going to come in. More security than you and I might think you would need. If you're going to send businessmen over there to live in Cairo, you want to know they're safe. Otherwise, you don't need to do it. He wants to create that kind of atmosphere and say, investors, this is a friendly and safe place to come. Tourism needs to pick up. It's still nowhere near where it was. It was once an important part of the economy, sailing on the Nile, visiting the yeah. pyramids and the Sphinx. So one can make the argument. It was certainly made to me. Look, he's doing some things that are necessary to do. Pretty hard to do this in a fully democratic system because people wouldn't vote for it, even though it's in their long-term interest. Do you agree with that? It's tough to rule Egypt. It's tough to grow up in a country with the pyramids in your background, to be reminded on a daily basis that your um, future will never live to your past. To see all those millions coming from around the world for what your ancestors built and to know that you will never achieve something equal to them. The, the, the reality of Egypt's modern misery, uh, the the grandiose uh, uh, pulse that it has has always put a temptation in Egypt of or a pressure on any ruler of Egypt expects to be more than just any normal country. Egyptians expect their country to be leading something. The Arabs under Nasser, mm -hmm. the, that Egypt has a is an is not a, a Somalia or an Afghanistan. With all due respect to all other countries in the world, it's a country that children in the West learn about in their um, school textbooks. It's a country that people around the world would automatically recognize. The land of the pharaohs, Moses. This is um, a constant psychological pressure, even beyond the economic challenges. All of these, and the more that Egypt has failed to modernize, to mm -hmm. find its place under the sun, the more the pressure has been and the, the, the urge for deliverance, for something to change their lives. The challenge for Sisi is to rule a country with such expectations, a country that doesn't expect just to get by, um, to, to survive, a country that expects much more because it thinks of itself. We, we call Egypt in Arabic, Ummud Dunya, the mother of the world. Such a country, obviously, it's, he has a tough job. There's no doubt about it. You know, probably the most interesting and unexpectedly interesting interview I did when I was over there was with Tariq Shaki, who is the Minister of Education. I don't know if you've met him or not, but it's relevant to this because he is a, he is a guy, very obviously a very smart guy, lived in the U.S. for more than 20 years. He was a professor of engineering. I would say he made clear to me, look, I don't need to be here. I can go back to the U.S. and live very well. I'm here because I think there's something historic I can do, which is to reform the education system, which needs to be reformed root and branch. And CC not only is allowing me to do it, he's ordered me to do it. He said to me, look, see, I told CC, if you want to do what we're talking about, which is change the education system, which is now based on rote learning, yep. no critical thinking, 
very few skills. The Muslim Brotherhood is making it worse. The Salafis don't make it any better. If you want me to do that, I can do it. But A, it's going to be hard. There's going to be resistance from teachers, from bureaucrats, from your cabinet. It's going to cost a lot of money. And the fruits, you may not get to see them in your lifetime. But if it's not done, if we leave it where it is, I guarantee you this country fails because we will not have young people prepared to work in a modern economy, much less the economy that's coming. This, I have to say, this interview struck me. And if I saw that he had you know, gotten shot or left the country, I'd say, well, that's probably it. Because here was an example, it seemed to me, of Sisi doing something to change Egypt from the bottom up. And that's an important thing because when you talk about other things Sisi's done that I want to discuss from the top down, a lot of your friends and my friends in this town say you can never change a country from the top down. Not alone you can't, but how do you change a country from the bottom up? If he's doing it, it seems to me he deserves some credit for doing that. Um, I think the... Everyone recognizes the failure of Egyptian education. We don't produce... And um, Middle Eastern education, oh, pretty of generally. Course, it's of course. I mean, I, uh, I can tell you stories <laughs> about... I mean, my favorite story of, of Egyptian education was a history uh, teacher sending a letter to El Ahram, the leading newspaper at the time, complaining that the government textbooks don't arrive on time. They come two months later, three months later. And he couldn't start teaching. And he was writing, why would you wonder why I can't? I mean, I know the history. It's not as if history changes. The answer is no. I don't know if this year we are going to praise Muhammad Ali as the founder of modern Egypt or we're going to curse him as an Albanian guy who came and occupied the country. I don't know if Ismail is a good guy, if the peace treaty is a good thing this time or not. The whole educational system is a complete disaster at the moment. It doesn't prepare people for a future job market at any form or shape. And as you've pointed out, it doesn't um, encourage any form of critical thinking. Um, level of intolerance is remarkable in such an educational system. I think any movement in that regard would be positive. I'd wait and see what they actually do. So far, um, there hasn't been an attempt to, to do a complete reform of the system. Well, I have to say, Shakwi, the minister says, that's what we are engaged so in. That's I, what we're engaged in. Yeah. We're going to start with new curriculum in September, but that's only the very beginning. Now, again, yeah. I, I would tell you yeah. I found him very sincere. Whether he succeeds or not, I can't possibly predict. The, the challenge, of course, is this is a, the bureaucratic country. I mean, maybe China is a competitor in that regard historically. But this is a country that has had a, a bureaucracy working for the system for I don't know how long in its history. That It's very hard to change that. It's very hard to challenge that bureaucracy. Gamal Abdel Nasser, for all his revolutionary talk, was never actually able to change the actual lives of people in Egypt's villages, for example. If you visit an Egyptian village today, if you visit it at the time of Nasser, and if you go back and read Tawfi al-Hakim's brilliant novel on, set in an Egyptian village, The Diary of a County Prosecutor in 1937, it's still the same. Mm. The inability of someone as a giant like Nasser with all his faults and everything, someone with such a revolutionary program to change the way the country operates, that's a challenge that Sisi or any ruler of Egypt would face, definitely. The other thing I think we, we want, I want to get your thoughts on, Sisi has made clear that he thinks Islam needs mm. to be moderate Islam. Mm. He has made clear that al-Azhar, which is the oldest, most ancient seat of 
Islamic learning in, in, in Cairo, uh, needs to make clear that Islam is not about murdering infidels and others. Um, one of the things that I heard from the uh, from the, the Coptic Pope, and I want to talk about him and the and the Grand Imam in a moment, was that whereas Sadat said I'm the Muslim president of a Muslim country, Sisi says I'm the Egyptian president of an Egyptian country. That's meant to include rather than exclude the Christian population, particularly the Coptic population, about 10% of the country perhaps, which people don't realize Egypt was a Christian empire for some 600 years before it was Islamized and Arabized, uh, if I can use those, those terms. Is that not an important thing also that Sisi is doing, well, at least what he is saying about Islam and Islam's role in the world and what Islam should be and has not been in, in, in too many instances? I think, I think some of his critics in Washington push back that um, he's doing it for the West. I think this is a complete misreading of it. I think he's very sincere in his call. He's a devout man he himself. Had, he had a prepared text that didn't have any of this language. Mm. And then he moved, and whenever he moves from the, the classical Arabic to the colloquial Arabic and begins to talk really with mm. the Egyptian people from the heart, he stood there in front of the various sheikhs of Al-Azhar and he told them that um, I will stand in front of God and blame you for the state of his religion today. Mm. That's that's the kind of person thing. So I think he's very sincere, very honest about it. Here, here are the problems. He has no plan. He's laid this issue, but there's no plan to implement it. How do we actually do that? I mean, it's obviously a very hard thing, so I don't blame him for not having a detailed plan. But he has no actual any anything on how to move. He's laid the issue at the, the hands of the sheikhs at Al-Azhar, and they're somehow going to do it. The second thing is that the bureaucracy resists. The bureaucracy in this sense also al-Azhar resists. This was tested very clearly when Islam al-Bahiri, um, um, Muslim himself who, would have, who had a TV program, questioning many of the hadiths attributed to the Prophet that are used by the Islamic State, al-Qaeda, and these terrorist groups, attacking al-Bukhari and all these books of hadiths, attacking the foundation, blaming al-Azhar for until today teaching, for example, the jurisprudence of taking slave girls and how to, to deal with that. And that this, why blame ISIS when they do that with the Yazidis girls? This is what you're teaching yourself. Mm. So when Islam was encouraged by Sisi's uh, speech and began raising the, the, the voice a bit, Al-Azhar automatically publicly complained. Sisi was forced to come out in a speech and said, when I talked about revolutionary religion, I meant by Al-Azhar, not by anyone walking in the street. Islam got a one-year jail sentence. He was jailed for that. Mm -hmm. So even him, with his sincere call for this religious form, there are red lines. He needs Al-Azhar. The Salafis still support the regime. It's important for him for this battle against the Muslim Brotherhood to appear only against the Brotherhood and not against Islam as a whole by having allies among the religious establishment and among the Salafis. I'm going to digress for a minute because I want people to understand this and it's hard to understand. When we talk about the Salafis, we're talking about people wearing the long beards, wearing the, uh, the, the, the long robes who want to live the way Muhammad and his companions lived. As they this understand is, As they understand it. Uh, all Sal now, this is, this is tricky, but people need to understand this. All Salafis are not jihadis, but all jihadis are pretty much Salafis. I think you, you can say that pretty much. Now, 
one might think that Salafis and Muslim, the Muslim Brotherhood would be close allies. They both look forward to a caliphate. They both look forward to the dominance of Islam. But that's actually not the case. They are more rivals than they are allies. Do I have that correct? Um, I mean, there's... Um uh, I, I did a study of Egyptian Islamism for a while, and I thought when I was proposed the study that I would divide it, a map of it, of uh, Brotherhood Salafis Jihadis. I ended up with 128 currents, subcurrents, groups, and it's a very complicated world. Uh, the Brotherhood is one organization. Salafism is anybody can become a Salafi tomorrow. So there's, um, there's no central authority. There's nothing... Everyone follows his own path or his own way, his own sheikh in this regard. Um, some of the Salafis have allied with the Muslim Brotherhood. Um, in fact, the, the radicalization of the Brotherhood was very much a result of their continuous collaboration with certain Salafis during the revolutionary period, during their year in power, and then after the coup and after they were forced in Turkey and all of that. You go to the Brotherhood channels, for example, that air from Turkey, and you have Salafi preachers there. But the main Salafi group that is called the Salafi Call, based in Alexandria, has supported President Sisi since day one. They hate the Brotherhood more than anyone else. They think of them as um, not really Muslims, hmm. in a sense that they, they, they're just people after a... Uh, a seat of power. They don't defend the Islamic principles as we do. They're not as rigid in their personal piety life and this as we are. So, so there's a lot of competition and fight between them. Has the Muslim Brotherhood effectively been crushed by President Sisi? <clears throat> I think yes. I think, uh, again, people uh, look back to Nasser's crackdown and they think, okay, the Brotherhood emerged after this. Uh, they missed two things. The first is that anything that the Brotherhood faced under Nasser is nothing compared to what they face today. Um, Nasser in 1954, when they tried to kill him, hanged seven people. When in 65, Said Qutb did his, his second uh, conspiracy, and he hanged him. Like Said Qutb was, was one of the great intellectuals of the Definitely. Muslim Brotherhood. I think we'd be fair and say that, yeah. Yeah, and uh, he hanged him and two other guys. Sisi, the Egyptian regime, killed a thousand people in one day in the street in Cairo. That's a very different level of crackdown. The second thing is that the Brotherhood actually didn't survive Nasser. It came out from the prisons to find an already existence Islamic renaissance in the universities that they simply recruited into them. This is the Abdelmenam Abul Futuh, and all those names that are today seen, Shatter himself and Morsi, were already Islamized in this sense, Morsi here in the United States and then joined the Brotherhood and not the reverse. So actually, had they not found this, the Brotherhood could have very, very easily been buried in the 1970s once and for all. Today, I think the Brotherhood is completely crushed. There are two competing leaderships. There are over 40,000 or so that went to prison, came out of prison in various states of this. My own estimate, 20,000 people in exile, mainly in Turkey, about 10,000 of them living there. Um, Qatar, Sudan, Malaysia, these are the centers where they go. Others that have left the group completely, others that are moving in more radical directions. It doesn't exist as the forces we used to know it in the past. Um, when I was in uh, Egypt, I, as you well know, I got to see both the Coptic Pope and the uh, Grand Imam. Fascinating discussions with two men, both of whom were rather charming, obviously very intelligent. Um, I reported what they told me. 
I think you were skeptical, to say the least, that they were telling me the truth, which makes sense because they know when they're talking to me, hey, this is not just between me and you guys. This is something I'm going to talk about on a podcast. I'm going to write about in columns. They're telling they're, – they have and to be – And there is someone listening in their own room. In their room as well. So talk to me, I guess, about what you think they could not say that they might have liked to say. No, uh, I mean the Coptic Pope is uh, – some people mistake his nationalist discourse, his pro-regime discourse as politics. I think he genuinely believes it. Um, he's a real he's an Egyptian patriot, yes, and, and that's yes. important to be he's an He's a Egyptian. real product of the nationalist educational system. He buys it. He often talks that all the countries of the world in, are in the hand of God, but Egypt is in his heart. Theologically very problematic, but somehow. There, it's also, in a sense, the Copts especially. Um, they lived in Egypt for 2,000 years. It's their home, everything. And naturally, as a nat- national church of a particular land, they developed a theology that's very much connected to that land. Uh, verses from the Bible, from Egypt have I called my son, blessed are the people of Egypt. All of this has formed this. So I think he, he means what he says. He genuinely believes Sisi is a savior in Egypt, that he will save the Copts. I think the one thing where he wasn't very straightforward is what he thinks of Al-Azhar. I think the Copts in general and the Pope in particular are understand the reality that Al-Azhar is pushing back against Sisi's call for reform, that it hasn't been willing to challenge the radicals as the Copts would hope that it would, that there are still sheikhs of Al-Azhar uh, that come out on TV uh, last week, the week before, that would call Christians kefirs, unbelievers, well, not a problematic term. It's problematic when you know what are the rules for the treatment of unbelievers, for fighting them, for all of that. So I think in the area of his relationship with Al-Azhar, this is where he wasn't as straightforward as... That, yeah. that makes sense. One thing I, I don't want to not discuss in this, there is a war taking place in Egypt at this very moment. We kind of forget about it. We don't get a lot of reporting on it. Hard for reporters to go. But in the Sinai, you have... Um, branches of the Islamic State. We like to think the Islamic State has been crushed in Syria. It's, I would say, it's been deprived of its territories, which is not quite the same thing. It's important, but that's not quite the same thing. It's not crushed entirely. And in Egypt, it's fighting a war that the Egyptians um, under Sisi, the military, a lot of people would say they've not been pursuing this war very effectively against uh, the Islamic State. I mean, not just the Islamic State, let me say comment in general. I think people take Egypt's stability for granted. Mm. I think there's a tendency in Washington to view Egypt as more modern than it really is, as more uh, cohesive as it really is. And hence, to assume, I mean, there's always the famous line from Tahsin Bashir about uh, when the moment of truth comes, only Egypt is the true nation state in the region, all the rest are tribes with flags. I think that undermines Moroccan or doesn't take seriously Moroccan identity or Tunisian or there are some other identities. In some, the region. not a lot. Yeah, but but it also overplays Egypt. There are still, I wouldn't call them tribal, but there are, yes, divisions, deep mm. divisions mm. in Egyptian mm. society. Um, um, it's, it's not as modern as it really is. And the possibility of a state collapse in Egypt is there. It's not a, a, a guarantee the, the way that we're saying in Libya, Syria, all of this. But it's there, and it should really concern us. 
my main problem with the with the those who want to punish Egypt's behavior is a it's not a policy it's uh, it's throwing a tantrum Egypt didn't live to our own expectations about a democratic transition and hence we need to show them that what they did wrong and somehow this will make them change because it's the 1.3 billion dollars or something that will turn Egypt into a democracy tomorrow but more importantly, that they ignore the risks that there is a real reality, a real possibility here of the country collapsing and that the main objective of the United States is to maintain the order it has built into the Middle East. And you cannot build that order without the cornerstone, this most natural of national states that is Egypt. So uh, there are many subjects I'd like to raise that we don't have time for all of them, but you, 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 you've begun to, to wade into the one that I think is, is usually important we have to discuss, which is what is U.S. policy towards Egypt and what should be U.S. policy towards Egypt? These are separate questions. I think that there is no yeah, real current U.S. policy towards Egypt. Um, um, I mean, we can go the long history, Kissinger, that the, the alliance was built on a certain formula. It no longer exists. Um, both uh, because the Cold War is no longer there, but also because Egypt is not the same country it was. There was an expectation back then that Egypt would be the leader of the region. It led it to war with Israel. It would lead it to peace. It led it to anti-Americanism. It would lead it into the U.S. camp. There was this assumption about Egypt, the natural leader of the Arab world. That's no longer the case. Egypt today can barely sustain itself and, frankly, has doesn't have the luxury of getting involved in any other country. John Kerry experienced this very clearly. He went to Cairo, wanted them to join the anti-ISIS coalition. They told him, we have an ISIS here. We have a problem here. We don't have the luxury of going and fighting in Iraq. So, so the basic assumptions were all wrong. I think any beginning of building a serious U.S. strategy needs to acknowledge the realities of Egypt today. Egypt is at risk of collapse, and that's a very important risk. That's something we need to be concerned about because no one wants uh, Somalia on the Nile. No one wants uh, Libya bordering Israel. No one wants you, you have a problem with 5 million Syrian refugees. Try 95 million Egyptian refugees mm. if something happens there. So, so you need that's number one issue. Number two, that whatever we think of the possibilities of promoting democracy or all of this, neither was there a point in 2011 since that Egypt was going to become a democracy. No, the rule of the Muslim Brotherhood, what happened, was not democracy, at least not what we understand it to be. Neither is there a point in the near future of Egypt where it would become a democracy. Now, do I like that reality? No. But that's what you deal with as a policymaker. You deal with Egypt as it is and not the Egypt that you want it to be. So we have colleagues, you and I, very smart people in the what's called the Egypt Study Group. They're prominent scholars from various think tanks, former government officials. I take it from what you just told me. You disagree with them. They're pushing the U.S. government to demand the most of CC, not just to expand a, a little bit of space within the public square, not just to ease up on human rights, but to push ahead. We need Egyptian democracy. We need real elections. We need that now. If I understand, you're, you're saying, look, it's the situation is very perilous. Very, there's not that. What we what do we need to do? Give aid. Give guidance. Is stability 
our priority at this point in regard to Egypt? Uh, I mean, let me put it this way. A country where half the population believes that Sisi's mother is Jewish and that his <laughs> uncle was a member of the Knesset and hence he's a member of the grand Jewish conspiracy in, against Egypt. And the other half of the country believes that Hassan al-Banna, the word Banna, his, his name means builder, is a Freemason, hence because of his name, and thus part and of the grand Jewish conspiracy. And he was the Muslim Brotherhood, just so people know. Yeah, the founder of the founder Muslim Brotherhood, brother, yeah. that his father, because he worked as a watchman, and Jews worked as watchmen in Egypt or something, that he's part of the grand Jewish conspiracy is not a country that's going to become a liberal democracy tomorrow. You want to fight for Egyptian liberal democracy in the future? I, I hate to put it this way, but you need to start small. You need to work on the basic things before you hold elections before that. It's hard. It, you don't get the nice results. You won't see the nice scenes on TV with people with I don't know what color on their finger and voting for the first time. But the road begins by challenging the conspiracy theory-dominated discourse that completely dominates the country. Anti-Semitism, which is the, the common glue of all across the political spectrum, by, by working on real educational reform, by working on the idea of tolerance and religious freedom, you begin by working small steps. Again, you don't win Nobel for it, but that's the way to change Egypt. You need to work on freedom and not democracy. Democracy is merely a tool for an end result, which is freedom, and and not the the end goal. Where we don't like that, we don't do this because we want people to stand and and see them in the lines. It's the idea of freedom, economic freedom, of political freedom, of religious freedom, of all of these that we actually believe in. And elections alone do not a democracy make. But when you're talking about baby steps, you're talking about educational reform, maybe. Um, um, better journalism than you have currently this, that doesn't engage in conspiracy theories but I mean if to... I'm if I'm the US president if I'm if I'm in that position um, uh, number one I need to understand the 1.3 billion does get me some leverage however it does not um, uh, buy me CC will not give up his life for me he's not going to commit suicide for 1.3 billion so there are things that are for the regime a question of survival where they will not move no matter what I'm paying them. And there are things where there is room for maneuver for him. Uh, protecting Christians, that's not a life and death issue for Sisi. Reconciling with the Brotherhood, that is a life and death mm. issue that he will never accept. So there are things that, that you can, 1.3 billion can get you, there are things that they don't. I think um, a key priority should be addressing the issue of anti-Americanism in the country. It's deep. It's, it's spread by the regime itself. It's official media. It needs to be seriously challenged because Egyptians are growing up with the United States viewed as an enemy conspiring against them. When you have the former head of the Egyptian Navy, the head of the, the uh, current head of the Egyptian Suez Canal Authority, come out in an interview and say that during 2011, the U.S. Navy tried to attack Egypt and we defeated them in battle and we took the commander of the Sixth Fleet hostage that's a problem because this guy gets paid by the United States. Mm. The Egyptian Navy, their equipment, everything is a, I mean, a gift of the American taxpayer. So there, there are issues that you need to work on regarding the, the spread of anti-Americanism, working on, on specific issues, uh, trying to improve the situation, on economic freedom issues. It's not just politics. You need to work also on economics. But at the end, you won't change the basic premises of the regime 
because it's a matter of survival. Just very quickly, you, you raised something that I want to just ask you a quick question on. What you just told us suggests that the military-to-military relationship, which we've had for years with Egypt, has not been that successful if the, if the Egyptian military who have been here, who have worked with Americans, if they don't understand that America is the best friend they can have and the worst enemy they can have. That should have been communicated long ago. Otherwise, what's the point? I think there's a problem always. I've looked at every single um, paper written, a master's paper, everything written by an Egyptian officer uh, coming to any of the American war colleges. And you can see it very clearly in their papers where the problem lies. I think we get them here too old. We need to work on younger officers. That's a factor. Um, number two, uh, it's not just here, meaning if they're the whole buildup back in Egypt from the, the days they were kids inside the military colleges, everything. And they still they get the same ideas about the U.S. conspiracy and everything. I mean, in the Egyptian official military college, they teach them about uh, the protocols of the elders of Zion as an actual fact. They teach them the book by some crazy guy in, in Canada during World War II called uh, Rocks on a Chessboard about the grand conspiracy to control the world and all that kind of thing. But another problem lies with us, of course. Um, we're neither confident anymore in the principles that we ourselves hold to be able to defend them and articulate them, nor are we willing to challenge others under uh, uh, cultural sensitivity and all of these terms. Um, I don't think enough effort is done in American war colleges to actually challenge the ideas that their Egyptian students hold. If people want to keep up with your work and follow you, how's, how, what is the easiest way to, to be in touch with you or to be reading you? Um, well, I, uh, my Hudson and Hoover websites, uh, pages on, on Hudson and Hoover have, have all my publications and articles, and uh, I'm on Twitter. So. <laughs> Sam, this has been just fascinating. It's an important country in a, in a, in a very difficult part of the world, so I want to come talk to you again about this, but thanks so much for being with us today here on Foreign Policy. Uh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Foreign Policy. As always, find and subscribe to our show on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like this week's episode and have feedback for us, please leave us a review on iTunes. We'd appreciate your thoughts, your praise, your suggestions, your criticisms as well. We hope you'll join us again in the future. Until then, I'm Cliff May, and you've been listening to Foreign Policy. Foreign Policy.